Hello, and welcome to Writing Matters, a podcast on books and creativity brought to you by the Writing University and the Department of English at the University of Iowa. I'm Blaine Gretemann, Professor of English and Chair of that department. My guest today is Rachel Yoder, a graduate of our nonfiction writing program whose debut novel, Night Bitch, was published by Doubleday in 2021 and has been adapted as a television series for Hulu that will debut this year. Night Bitch tells the story of an ambitious artist who puts her career on hold, as they say, to raise her toddler and soon finds herself transforming into a nocturnal, carnivorous dog, or maybe going crazy, or maybe rediscovering her artistic inspiration, while her husband spends long trips out of town for his job. It's an amazing story about motherhood, creativity, and community, and we discuss the winding path that brought her to it from her childhood in an intentional Mennonite community in Ohio, to her career as a Georgetown pre-med dropout, her MFAs in fiction and nonfiction, and her jobs in the Iowa City art scene. I hope you enjoy it. I'm glad to get to talk with you, because I just met with a prospective student the other day. She came in and said she wanted to be a novelist, and she wanted to know if this was the sort of place where you could learn how to do that. And I told her, well, we really try to teach broad genres and give you a taste of lots of different sorts yeah, of things. And I happen to have your book on the table. I said, because <laughs> we think that's exactly the sort of thing that, you know, enables you then to write lots of different sorts of material. So I thought I'd just ask you to tell me a little bit about your <laughs> education and how it oh, led sure. you to the book. Well, I think that's a great pitch for the English program at Iowa. Yeah, I feel validated. Um, and I definitely thought... You know, I have a, an MFA in fiction that I got at the University of Arizona, which is a much, it was a pretty conventional program. Um, and then when I came to the nonfiction program at Iowa, I really, that was where I felt like my brain exploded because we were talking about the essay, but we were talking about, you know, how do you have facts and then also have imagination and play um, and delight uh, at the same time, and that really like hit the right button in my brain, um, where it's like, oh yeah, you can bring everything you have into essay writing. Like everything is welcome, all modes are welcome. So that was really cool. Um, so I have an, MW- an MFA from the NWP from University of Arizona in fiction, and then I went to Georgetown undergrad, and I was a English literature major. Okay. Yeah, and a, and a secret wannabe writer, which I did not reveal to anyone. Did they even have a creative writing program there? It turns out they did, but okay. I didn't know that. It was so underground. Yeah. But also that just, like, wasn't on my radar. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think I could write stories. That seemed like outer space to me at the time. So what what were you particularly drawn to in doing the English major? Were you just a sort of, was it just that you loved? to read and what are there particular things well actually i started out as a pre-med student and you know cried during um calculus and uh and chemistry just it was horrible so after the first semester i'm like why don't i do what i love i was an engineering (laughs) why did we do that to ourselves yeah and i think english for me really activated both the creative and analytical parts of my brain literary analysis I think I do actually better than creative writing and I found it really engaging and really compelling and a real outlet for creativity Mm -hmm. um 
And so I, I loved literary analysis and I mean, it was just a natural, a natural choice for me because I was a reader and my obvious proclivity was in English. So what took you, so let's back up then what, between the undergrad degree and doing the MFA, what was the, what kind of motivated you to, so you went into the undergrad degree, not intending to do an MFA. Yeah. Was the, did you take any gap time or did you oh go my straight gosh. from undergrad? You, that is really the question. You, that's okay. <laughs> so buckle up. So, um, <laughs> senior year. This, this, is, this, well, this is good because I, I have a lot of, a lot of students. I, I hope the answer is yes. Cause a lot of students have like anxiety. They think they need to go straight from an oh undergrad my gosh. to an MFA. So. You know, I had a lot of anxiety after I thought I had really like messed up my life, um, by dropping out of Georgetown, the final semester oh, okay. of college. <laughs> and, um, and for many years after that, even though, you know, I completed my degree and the biggest gift my dad ever gave me, well, one of the biggest gifts is he said, don't worry about it. Your path does not look like everyone else's path. And I think that's really true for artists and writers. And it was really generous and kind of him to allow me to have my life look a lot different than my friends who went into investment banking in mm -hmm. New York City and went to law school and did it, you know, like we're on the track. So I had a just like a, a big, huge personal crisis that involved a guy. Um, I wound up dropping out of college my senior year, last semester. I went to Arizona um, to get some help. And I wound up staying in Arizona. And I was in this little town called Prescott. Turns out Prescott has this amazing college called Prescott College, where I wound up finishing my degree. And in that final semester of coursework, I took um, a class with a creative writing teacher. I think it was a women's lit class, but she was also a creative writer. Um, and she became my mentor. I think mm. I might've taken two classes with her, like fiction and um, women's lit. And she told me I was a writer and it changed the course mm. of my life. I need, I was so lost. And there was one person who told me that I was what I wanted to be in my deepest, darkest places, mm -hmm. um, most secret place. And so I wound up working there, taking a few more creative writing courses. And she was really the one who helped me apply to MFA. Like I didn't know anything about that world. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a very, it, I mean, it's been a very winding path and it does not look like anything standard. Yeah. Um, and I had to just at some point decide to be okay with it. Like I'm going to live an artist's life and that doesn't have any certain way that, you know, any certain shape or look to it. I think for sometime when I was back when I was the director of undergrad studies, which is actually, I think the time when I first met you because yeah. I started doing those publishing panels when you were working for Mission Creek. Okay. Yeah. We teach this class called English at Work here, which mm -hmm. is about the different kind of career paths through English. So some of them are sort of writing and editing, but some of them are, I mean, some of them are like investment banking. <laughs> yeah, but, sure. And um, some of them are waitressing. Wait, yeah. yeah and, like... and they are all super duper windy, which is the thing that yeah. I think, and I, I feel like there's something really kind of liberating about that class for a lot of students because the English major, you know, draws students sometimes who are just curious. And yeah, and I think that's 
kind of the most exciting thing about it is that you, you when, when you do hear that it's kind of okay to <laughs> yeah and I think too I mean curiosity goes hand in hand with having the, the mind of a writer and I think also flexibility and also liking to be flexible liking to kind of not know what happens next and to make it up as you go along. I mean, that's sort of the creative process too. Yeah. So Okay, so how after after the MFA in fiction you got interested in nonfiction writing, was there a gap or did you There was a gap. In? I taught for a year at Prescott College. I adjuncted and um found it hard to live on the money mm-hmm. I was making. It was pretty miserable. Uh and I told myself I could indulge one more MFA if it were from Iowa and if it were paid for. So I applied to one school and it was Iowa and I wrote in my statement. I don't know where I got the guts to do this, but I think I was just desperate. I wrote in my statement, I the only way I can come there is if I'm a fellow, um, if it's fully funded. And they some for some reason they let me in and for some reason they funded me. So I came to Iowa. Um, and I had written a modern love essay mm-hmm. uh, when I was at the University of Arizona and had that published. And that was kind of my first foray into nonfiction. I took a nonfiction workshop mm-hmm. then. Um, and I really, I really liked it. I thought, oh, we can we can do the stuff here that we're doing in fiction. Like there's room, there's a lot of room to move around in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I was already writing really um, autobiographical fiction. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, where how do I want to tell these stories? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about Night Bitch because, as I was just telling you, I'm reading Louisa Hall's new book, Reproduction, yeah. which is autofiction. And yours isn't. I, I explained. It. I don't think it's. I don't think you would call it that exactly, but it is. You know, is, I love calling it autofiction okay, because okay. it's a mom that turns into a dog, and I'm like, yep, it's autofiction. I think because it feels very emotionally autobiographical, but obvious. I mean, and it, and it did start out. I thought I was writing a book of essays. Like I, I started writing an essay okay, on, that's yeah. on pumping um, and the and the lactation room that was here at the University of Iowa. And eventually I was like, oh, no, this. And then I started writing this other thing. And I'm like, oh, these go together. Like the, this is a mom. She's really disgruntled. And these lactation, this lactation essay goes into the book. Mm. Um so yeah, it was interesting. I didn't know what I was doing. Was when that I when you were working for the Iowa Youth Writing Project? Well, what happened was, I mean, I did use the lactation room when I was working for the Iowa Youth <laughs> Writing Project. I can only imagine. I I haven't been in it, but I can imagine that it's grim. It's pretty grim, Blaine. <laughs> it's very grim. So, um, so when I was on maternity leave from my copywriting job, I got this amazing job leading the Iowa Youth Writing writing project um and my husband meanwhile got an amazing job amazing promotion where he would work away from home every week and so I'm like that's fine it's we're having a modern family like we can have it all we can like have the job you know we can make money we can have a baby nine months later I stepped down from the IYWP because it was really intense Mm -hmm. to have an infant to be alone to be working full-time and then I was just home with my son, and I didn't write for the first two years he was alive, um, which is now in retrospect, it's like, of course you didn't write for two yeah. years. But at the time, it felt like, oh, who am I? Like, maybe I'm just not a writer anymore, and I, and I sort of panicked. So then the lactation essay was one of the first things that kind of came after I started writing again or made myself write again. Yeah. yeah. 
It's super intense, isn't it? I mean, like I told you, Mike, I think you first came across my radar because my kids were going to the Iowa Youth Writing Project. We had four, including oh my two God. twins. Yeah, I shouldn't even complain. I only and have so, one. You have four. <laughs> well, and so my wife was, you know, often, we both of us really were trying to figure out, like, what are things we can <laughs> we can do with them so we can get, you know, five minutes to, yeah. to think. Oh, my and, gosh, I can't even imagine. And there is so much. It's, it's interesting because there, especially around the time we had the twins, I remember there was all this sort of... Um, there were these like heroic studies. We were living out at Berkeley at the time, and it would be like the the Oakland bus driver who never quits breastfeeding her child because she can pull over and she'll pump oh in the lactation room. I mean, this that is the one I really insane. remember. Yeah. And, and it was, and they were all kind of you know pitched as these like you know this is great kind of progressive government and yeah. feminist empowerment, but they're really grim. Yeah, <laughs> much like the lactation room. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely just bonkers to to glorify a bus driver who pulls over to pump. To me, that just that seems like one of the stages of hell. Like, and I think part of me, you know, part of this book was like coming into consciousness around these store these stories that we've been fed. Oh, like isn't this heroic? And it's like, well, you know, what would be really great is if like in European countries, you know, we got a year off after yeah. we had, and we, we had, we were supported by the government and we were given monetary support. And, and you weren't made to feel like you were somehow, um, well, like I, I love, you know, in, in the book you have, you know, when, when there is time off, there's this you know, anxiety like about, are, are you, are you, are you really a full person if mm. you're, if you're, if you're sort of just taking time off? <laughs> from the real work, yeah, yeah. quote unquote, right? Yeah, like yeah, real yeah. work is what you get paid for. And mothering or parenting is not quite real work, even though yeah. it's 24-7, it's grueling. Um, it takes all of your attention for every, you know, yeah. every moment of the day. Yeah. Well, this was something Lauren talked about a little bit, too, with Team Photograph, is that there were certain sorts of creative activity that she could do when she was with or around her children like she said she could draw but she couldn't write mm. um what was your or what what was what is your relationship with navigate how, how how old my son is nine is now okay. yeah we're in a whole different era it's a different era yeah tell me a little bit about how like how that worked for you how you sort of started writing again oh man i mean it was very uh, it was something that I had to plan and I had to force myself to do. I mean, it was not something that I did in sort of stolen minutes here and there. I, I mean, I, I know kids are different. My son was very intense. Um, maybe all kids are very intense. I don't know. I only have one. They're but... all intense in different ways. Okay, yeah. So he was really intense at that. And he still likes to lock in with a person, mm -hmm. like whether it's like his swim instructor or his piano teacher. He likes a one-on-one -on -one intense experience with someone. Yeah. So when I, when I, when I said to myself, okay, I have to write. And I think my husband also was like, you need to write. You're losing your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, he would just be like, leave. And I would, for two hours, go to the coffee shop. And that's all I would do. And then I would come home. I mean, it was just, it was kind of like exercise or something. Mm -hmm. Like I knew I needed to do it. Yeah. And I think really the only time I felt creative with my son or felt like I was doing something sort of adjacent to writing is what is in our play. Mm -hmm. You know, when we would have these really great sort of 
creative play sessions, I would get the same feeling as when I was having like a really good writing session. So what were you doing in the two hour writing sessions at coffee shopping on was it was it essays that then turned into fiction yeah I think at first I thought I was working on essays and it was very undirected and not you know not focused I didn't have any goals I was just kind of floundering and then I think when this voice of night bitch arrived and I started I was like oh I have a direction I'm writing in then I got really regimented in a way I had never been Mm -hmm. before Um, and I had to write a thousand words every time I sat down and I would have these, Mm -hmm. you know, two week periods where I'm writing a thousand words every day, no matter what. And then I would go, you know, and then for a month I wouldn't write and then I would do it again. Um, yeah. And I had never written like that before. I never would have thought I could write like that, but I wanted, I was approaching 40. I didn't have a book. I had two MFAs. I wasn't in the workforce. I didn't have a teaching job. And I'm like. Let's write a book, Rage. So that's how I did it. Yeah. So it it sort of started as a as a voice that you were exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a point at which that turned into a sort of a, a plan, or were you just kind of playing with and exploring the voice? Mm. Uh, when okay. or whether a plot? I mean, I never had aspirations of being a novelist. I never thought I would write a novel. So I thought I was writing a short story, but then when I was done with it, it was. 50 or 70 pages long Mm. and I thought oh no have I written a novella what have I done (laughs) what horrible thing have I created and I and I said to myself well this feels actually like the first act of a movie Mm -hmm. um you know she's like reached the point of no return she's Mm -hmm. like turned into a dog it could the story could be done or we could think that there are two more acts left to go and so that's when I made the decision, okay, this is going to be a novel. So that's when you really started setting out a kind of plan for structure. Yes. Yeah. Very loose plan for structure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Did your routine shift then? Did it just, it, at some point it shifted into the sort of thousand word sessions. Right. That's a long time at a coffee shop. Did you, did you find another sort of place to write or or were you just like working at Java House? At Java House First Ave is where I wrote this book. I I had always kind of been a coffee shop worker. Um, Yeah, just having other people around makes me feel less lonely and like I mean, you know, maybe engaged in something that is of society and not just my own little, you know, dreams. Um, I mean, I, I wrote it mostly there. Like, I did not... The thing is, is when I was at home, m- you know, my child was obsessed with mommy as mm-hmm. children are. And so it just would, it wouldn't have been possible. This, this is an interesting <laughs> thing. I think this is one of those things about Iowa City that is really good and validating is that when you are working on something like that at a coffee shop, you're not considered a freak. <laughs> you know, there, there are multiple yeah. people who are doing that sort of thing. For sure. Yeah. Um, so now, now you're one of the, you're, you're one of, one of them, one yeah, of the people totally. that people point to when they say, you know, UNESCO city of literature, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, it was really funny. The barista at first app after the book came out, you know, he's like, I, I read <laughs> what barista would do. He's like, I, I saw your book came out, Rachel. And I read a review and I was like, Oh wow. Thanks. And he's like, you know, I play in a band with Marilyn Robinson's son. I'm like, of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Such an Iowa City story. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Okay. Um, at what did you have? Um, 
people who were reading what you were writing and giving you feedback? I mean, what was, I, I know, you know, I know you're friends with Lauren, for yeah. example. Yeah, I had an agent who um, I would send chunks of it to. I don't think she really needed to read it, but I I did that so I felt like I had to send something mm-hmm. to someone by a certain date. And then at some point I um, became part of a writing group. And I think it was during the writing of the book. Um, so three other women and they read, they didn't read the whole thing, but they read a lot of the early stuff, mm-hmm. the early pages, probably the first hundred pages they read. So t- tell me a little bit about how did you find your agent? Yeah, it was very, again, very non-traditional way. So I had a collection of short stories that was going to be published by a little press in Chicago, an indie press. And I had that had happened through an editor who came to Mission Creek where I was a programmer. Mm-hmm. And so so I, I edited it. I worked on it there. Um, and then finally we we got to, okay, we're gonna they're gonna publish this, put it into production. And she gave me a contract and said, I don't want you to sign this contract without having an agent look it over. There's this agent who works with a lot of indie authors I know. Would you like me to introduce you? So I already had a contract in hand when I sort of, you know, got an agent, which is mm-hmm. not usually the way it goes. And she helped me through that process. Then as 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 it happens, the um, small indie press folded uh, <laughs> before my book was published. And um, so then I was just kind of, you know, had a collection of short stories that my agent now was like, I can't sell. You know, you have to turn this mm-hmm. into a novel. Mm-hmm. And then I, it was just dead. You know, I was like, I'm not going to write that novel. Yeah. So then for a couple of years, like I just didn't talk to my agent because I didn't have anything. And then when I started to have something, I would I would send it to her. Did or will anything ever happen with the, with the short I, story? I'm hoping. Oh, my gosh. I'm hoping. I've been working on that. And maybe what that collection, which is now half of it is old, half of it is new. Maybe by the time I'm done, all of it will be new. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm working on it now. I should probably, in case people are listening to this who don't know what Mission Creek is, that's a good chance for me to ask you about it. So Mission Creek is a sort of music and literary festival. I was a programmer. I did, you know, literary um, events. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you... Had you start? How long did you do it? Oh, this is okay. Yeah. This was also I remember now. Our my last email to you had been <laughs> January twenty twenty, oh, saying gosh. like we'll see you at Mission Creek when we do the publishing interview panel, yeah. and then we and then it was th- three. We years. didn't see. We have seen each other now. Actually, <laughs> yeah. um, that was such a heartbreaker too. Yeah, that was. It was. Yeah, because going to be a great festival. We had done it a couple times. Yeah. I remember I had you know either come and and. Um, done Q and A's and panels where you were bringing in small presses, art, art presses, Mm -hmm, different, different mm -hmm. sorts of publishers. Yeah. But how did you end up in that? Let's see. So a fun fact about Mission Creek is that it was started probably more than 20 years ago now, which I can't believe I'm saying that, um, by Andre Perry, who's the current head of Hancher now. Um, and Andre was also, he also got his MFA in the NWP. A year, he was a year ahead of me. So I knew Andre just as a fellow student and cool person mm-hmm. um, and friend. So uh, when he started, he was doing Mission Creek already through the Anglert. And the guy who was doing literary programming, I mean, it was growing, right? So mm-hmm. they just needed a little bit more support. So I came on to just sort of support it. And then 
kind of grew into doing more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's still going on. It's a little different now because mm-hmm. Andre's at Hancher and there are new people programming. Uh, but yeah, it was, it's just a, this really great confluence of indie music and indie lid and um, a lot of cool events well, in the spring. I, it's interesting to hear that because I think that's, um, that's a version of networking. Networking is one of those oh, terms. Sure, yeah. It's one of those terms that I always was really averse to when mm. I like I think I think a lot of English majors are because it sounds really gross and businessy, oh. but um, but there's this kind of organic version of it that's really important for Yeah. Yeah. I mean the writing world is very small. And if you don't want to think of it as networking, just I always thought of it as just having friends. <laughs> yeah. And I had a lot of friends and you know, was nice to them. And if you're, yeah. if you do that in the literary world, doors will open for you, whether they're indie doors or. Okay. So, um, so you may or may not have been working on night bitch in 2020. <laughs> well, what about the pandemic? I mean, how, what role did that play in your writing of the novel or just yeah, kind of your, it was your crazy. creative process? So um, we actually sold the book in January 2020. Oh, okay. Um, and so what was happening as the world shut down is I was talking to production companies about a film deal, which was a very odd juxtaposition of events, right? Like the biggest sort of break in my career um, set against just utter societal collapse. So that was interesting. <laughs> um, and then one thing that happened was in that film, eventual film deal – my agent negotiated it so that I could write an adaptation, which wasn't to say that that adaptation would then be used, Mm -hmm. which it hasn't been. So I was writing an adaptation of my first novel during a pandemic, you know, when my child was home for, for the first stint of it. And, and again, panicking because I felt like I was in another night bitch situation Mm -hmm. where, my husband was still going to work. He was still leaving. And I'm like, I have to write a screenplay. I've never done this before in its entirety. But I have my kid. What am I? I'm just yeah. not going to be able to do it. Now, literally all the time because Zoom school. I mean, he, yeah, he was, was he in, in kindergarten. Kin- yeah. yeah. And so we did then find a way for him to go to school. And then I could I could, I could, write the adaptation. But um it was really stressful. So the book, the book blew up in a really big way, but did that cut into the opportunity to do like book tour? Yeah. So January twenty twenty, the book sells. For the duration of twenty twenty and the spring of twenty twenty one, I'm writing an adaptation. Incredibly stressful. Finish the screenplay in the spring of twenty twenty one before the book comes out in July of twenty twenty one. So, yeah, then the book came out and there was no tour. It was the summer of 2021. Um, we had like a little window of time where we all thought it mm-hmm. was over and then everything shut shut down again. So I just did a lot of online events. I think I did maybe two in-person events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah, I, had, I actually had forgotten that we were doing things like, you know, Zoom readings yeah. and, and Zoom book launches. I mean, so many. And it was, I mean... Frankly, I kind of got lucky, which is a weird word to use in a way, because it was a real night bitch moment when night bitch came out. Mm-hmm. You know, there were all those articles about, you know, all the women who had fallen out of the workforce and the uneven distribution of domestic labor and um, 
there were a lot of moms who were really angry. Yeah. Uh, because all all of the stuff in Night Bitch was getting pressurized in in the pandemic. Yeah. At I, home. Yeah. I, I, I think. I think because it it really was clear as soon as it came out that it was going to be. I mean, not only because I was hearing people talking <laughs> in my own in my own house <laughs> talking about it, but um, but yeah, I mean, really quick, it did seem like this. It, it really kind of hit in a moment where it was. Yeah, people resonating. felt crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they're like, yeah, I could turn into a werewolf. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, this is a sort of a weird transition, but should we talk about um, the Mennonites? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that was a beautiful transition. Um, <laughs> we should, for sure. Okay, um, so I'm, this is going back to education and sort of the various kinds of preparation that go into writing the book. But I, I, I you were telling me before maybe before we started recording, it's in your bio anyway, <laughs> that you were raised in an intentional Mennonite community, which sounds super conservative and restrictive but you also mentioned your dad sort of in a in a very generous and important way talking about you know how your your path would be windy mm-hmm. um so can you tell me a little bit about that can i ever could i write a book about it um well and it does kind of pop up in this book as well yeah uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, my my very early upbringing was in a very conservative Amish Mennonite community. I went to Mennonite school. Um, my aunts wore plain clothes. They spoke Pennsylvania Dutch. Church was the center of our lives. Um, and then we moved the summer before third grade to the intentional Mennonite community, where church was still the center of our lives, but it was a, felt much more progressive, right? It had this sort of 60s hippie quality to it and I think I really think the reason I am the way I am is because my dad is an intellectual and is also an Amish Mennonite which is a very strange combination like he has probably read more than anyone I know which is saying a lot because I know a lot of very bookish people um he's just really interested in in the world, um, in a way that a lot of Mennonite folks aren't. And so that, you know, like I was, I was in the commune, um, growing up, but then I was reading the New Yorker and Harper's, which we had delivered to our house Mm. every, you know, Mm -hmm. every month or week. And so it was this sort of like ideal childhood in a way, right? Like growing up in this beautiful place, there are always, adults around to talk to if you you know if your parents didn't understand you there was another adult to go to there were always friends around other kids Mm -hmm. um there was a lot of freedom because you were out in the country and so i would just be gone for the entire day and then my parents would like blow a horn when it was time for dinner Mm -hmm. and i would come Mm -hmm. running back so yeah it was this weird mix of like incredible intellectual and creative freedom but then also, you know, a lot of church mm-hmm. and a lot of religion. But then we were also processing religion in, I think, a very different way than a lot of Mennonites were. You know, like each of the each of the parents um, took turns being the worship leader every Sunday. So it was sort of like literary analysis of the mm-hmm. Bible mm-hmm. <laughs> every Sunday. Like these very sort of intellectual takes and intellectual reads of the scriptures. And I mean, that's... Protestantism in a lot of you know yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways. Whenever whenever I teach 
sort of like where English literature comes mm. from. I think it's born out of that like interpretive impulse, you know. Yeah, of course, um, of course. Yeah, that, that's, it, so it's really interesting, partly because of the book then, I mean, you're describing this very social, communal environment. And the book is really, in a lot of ways, about feeling super isolated mm-hmm, as a mother mm-hmm. in in a town like I. We've been we've been kind of seeing <laughs> the virtues of Iowa City, but it, yeah. but it but it's in a lot of ways the book is about like is about how difficult it is to find anything like that here. Oh I yeah, think. I mean I think in a lot of ways it's about the failings of secular life, like the failings of living outside of institutions which have provided community for us. Um, so it's kind of asking the question of what happens when the institutions that have brought us together in many ways break down, when no one goes to church anymore, when no one, um, I don't know, is like meeting up at the coffee shop, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when neighborhoods aren't what they used to be, the community of neighborhoods isn't. So I think it was just mother, parenthood for me was a, it really blew my hair back because I had been raised in an incredibly communal way, right? Mm-hmm. Where where there was always a place for a child to go and it and all of the responsibility did not fall on one person. Mm-hmm. There was always another house you could go to. Um, it was really safe for you to like be out on your own. And none of that was true, you know, as I came into sort of like a more secular existence. Uh, and I didn't know how to make it go. It felt, it felt impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Secular life, academic towns sort of feel like that too. Cause people just get plucked out of one place and sort of drop mm, down. Yeah. And, and um, so it feels like there's a lot of that kind of, I mean, there is the kind of connection of the academy and the cohort sure. that you have and something yeah. like the NWP, but <clears throat> it's also a lot of people who aren't really from here who are suddenly find themselves yeah, living absolutely. here. Um, and all of my cohort, you know, I had an amazing cohort, a wonderful community. And I remember writing, like, that's why I want to come get another MFA is the community. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I ha- as it turned out, I had my son right after everyone had moved away. You know, mm-hmm. it was like that five-year mm-hmm. mark or something after grad school when everyone's finally gone. Um, and I hadn't really assimilated into being a local. So I was mm-hmm. in this weird in-between space. Yeah. Okay, so now you've... It- after that, you you had the you had the uh, the writing group in the novel. There are things you know this kind of attempt. There there are things like the book babies groups, oh, which sure. are kind of you know the attempts yeah. to find some sort of community. Um, are there are there things? This is kind of getting outside the realm of writing <laughs> and more into just life. But are are there kind of um, I don't know r- routines, organizations, networks that you're that you're finding that offer solutions to the kind of crisis that you're <laughs> detailing in that book. I mean, it's isn't it funny that one of the places where I found the most community was at the library as a, you know, as a parent that that was a real space of community around books. And I think that's been the place where I continue to find the most community is among writers. Mm. Um it gets harder when your kids get older, actually. That's one thing, you know, you don't have the little, all the the things like the little. Yeah, the little programming yeah. things. Yeah. And so then it's like, oh, well, I'm going to, am I just going to be friends by default with 
the parents of my kids' friends. Don't. Like, <laughs> um, you do, you do. I mean, there is a certain point. Well, you were mentioning okay, piano. You you mentioned tons of activities. I mean, there are ways that you kind of get pulled into their world and their network. Yeah. I suppose as they get older and they start to have all these uh, all these interests that they're pursuing. It's true, but as it turns out, um, my son is also very, um, he's like a homebody. He's intensely creative and productively creative. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm finding sort of in a weird way, like creative community within my own household because we're, I'm like, oh, we're, let's make a movie together or let's, mm. let's write a song together. Yeah. So it's been this really interesting process of you know, finding that with my son. But yeah, I mean, it's still, I, I still have to be very, um, have to remind myself to be outgoing and like, I need friends and I need <laughs> grown up friends. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. The problem that you're describing there, that's something that people feel really acutely. I mean, you mentioned the, the guy who plays in the band with Marilyn Robinson's son, <laughs> right. but I mean, you're describing Essentially, you know, one of the things that I think Marilyn Robinson comes back to over and over again in, in her books and in her essays, that kind of problem of secular modernity. Yeah, that, um, for sure. It's pretty hard to solve on your own by joining a club <laughs> or something. Yes, it, yes. You mention, or not you, the the character, Night Bitch, mm-hmm. um, has this kind of secrecy around... Um, creative projects she's working on, right? The idea that you don't want to talk about them or you'll ruin them. Yeah. Um, Is that something that you, I mean, do do you have a kind of reluctance to talk about work in progress? Yeah, I I definitely do. Uh, um, And you you come up with ways of talking about it that isn't actually talking about it, right? So you can kind of get by when people ask you what you're working on. But yeah, I do think that there's a certain point at which it's done enough or it's solidified enough that then you feel like you can talk about it because I don't know, there's something about saying you're doing one thing that then sort of messes up the thing that you're doing. Like you're looking at it too closely mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it potentially kind of locks you in to Or for me, usually I, it just sounds really dumb when yeah. I tell someone what I'm working on. I'm like, ah. I sort of lose confidence in the, you know, so now I've just learned to keep it general. I can see how, I mean, even though it's a really amazing idea for a book, but you can see how if you described it at a really early early stage, it it would feel like... You break it. it. It's really fragile. Yeah, it could feel kind of embarrassing almost to to tell somebody about it. (laughs) It's it's still embarrassing sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. Oh, no, I, I want to ask one more question. Um, I, would, I, I do want to know a little bit about whether there were any particular books or essays, literary models that were really important to you or you found yourself going back to as you were writing the book. I mean, typically what I write is pretty directly inspired from something else, especially short stories, whether it's kind of like a tone or a style or, or a turn, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of strategy they're using. Um, I consider early motherhood to be a sort of when I had a stroke, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of stuff that like happened. I, I did read a lot of mother mothering books. I read Rachel Cusk. I read Jenny Offal. Um <clears throat> 
but I have kind of no memory of reading mm-hmm. it. And the story I tell about this book is that I I had written it and was sort of getting ready to do publicity. And I thought, okay, people are going to ask me what, what books I was reading, what, what inspired this. So I kind of went back in my files, went back to the beginning, right, when I started and, like, opened the documents and looked in them. And there was one document, and all it was was a quote from the Jenny Offal book um, from Department of Speculation, which is about a mother. And it's this quote about how she always thought she would be an art monster. She mm-hmm. never thought, yeah. And I had just typed that out in, during my stroke. <laughs> I thought I was going to write something about it and then closed it. And then once the book was done, opened it and said, oh, well, this is it. This was it. The art monster. Like, this is what Night Bitch is. Yeah. Um, And so there was a lot of kind of unconscious stuff going on, yeah. I think. Yeah. Did you research werewolves? I definitely did not research werewolves. <laughs> I mean, I, another book I will give a shout out to that probably a lot of if any students are listening to this, they might have read is um, Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, mm-hmm. which was also really inspiring to me because it was this book that was playing with genre that was like a little sci-fi, a little fantasy, a little urban legend, um, but had seen really great success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that book and I thought, well, if Carmen can write this book, maybe there's a place, um, mm-hmm. in the literary world for a dog mom. So yeah, it's a really <laughs> great book. I, Thanks. yeah, I, re- I really, really love the book and, um, thank you for coming in and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks. That's Rachel Yoder, whose novel Night Bitch will be appearing on screens near you soon with a Hulu series. Meanwhile, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. And I think you'll see why it was named the best book of the year by Esquire and was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. Thanks again to Lauren Haldeman at the Writing University for doing all the work to make this podcast available. And thank you for listening.